the decree went out from Caesar Augustus. And if your kids are in Christian school, they probably memorized this passage and came home and, and you heard it a hundred more times. So it's, it's very familiar to us. And it's often um, heard and thought of in terms of Christmas because it's the birth of Jesus after all. That makes sense. Yet, I think as we slow down and look at this, there's just some incredibly encouraging, incredibly moving, and incredibly challenging things about God that we discover. That I really truly believe affect the way we respond to him. And that's hopefully this morning we respond to him and who he is and trust him more and delight in him more and are in awe of him more than ever after looking at this. Because truly our God is amazing. Truly amazing. The first thing I want us to notice here is that God employs the wicked. Notice how he does this. Employs the wicked to fulfill his word. It starts off with this historical account, right? Verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration from Quirinius, sorry, when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And so all went to be registered, each to his own town. And then so it sounds like a registration, a registry is being called for. People are, have to register with the government, and you know what's happening here. Do you know why they're doing this? Because Caesar wants taxes. He wants to lay a heavy burden on these people because he wants more income. So to be registered, when someone was registered, they'd tell them their income, their estate, if they have servants, how many children, how much land or property they own, they had to disclose this information. So in this passage sets up a scene that both, to both show us the historicity of the actual events and also the wonderful acts of God's providence. It just doesn't say, does it? Chapter 2, and Jesus was born. Next. It gives some specific details here. Some specific details about how it is that Jesus actually was born in Bethlehem. Because remember, Joseph and Mary live where? Up north in Nazareth. They're 100 miles away from Bethlehem. But... There's events going on in the world, and not only events, events none of them like. Greater oppression. It's, it's said by many scholars that probably the decree went out long before it actually took place, and it took actually some harsh pressure and persecution to get everybody to press them to go and get registered. And so they reluctantly make their way. So... Nazareth. They're up in Nazareth. They've got to come down to Bethlehem. They're forced to. And you know why they're forced to? Make this, and guess what? This is about 100 miles, approximately. That's a significant journey if you're talking riding on a camel, a camel or a donkey or walking. Significant. That's a, that's a massive journey. Not only that, Mary's nine months pregnant. Nine months pregnant. Now, who is nine months pregnant and wants to go a hundred miles on a donkey or a camel uh, or walk? I mean, if you really want to induce labor, okay. But 
That's not something you want to do. But we have to remember something, right? We have to remember that God said, spoke earlier in, like 400 years earlier, in the book of Micah, what did he say? That the, the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem. But this is not on their radar screen. Micah chapter 5, verse 2 says, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old and from ancient days. That particular passage is what all the Hebrew scholars at that time, they all knew, if you were to ask the question, where is Messiah to be born? And we see this in the book of Matthew. They would all say, Bethlehem. You know, and the reason they needed to go all the way down to Bethlehem the reason they had to go down, down there to be registered was because that was their connection to family. That was their family connection. And the way it worked, and the way it worked is that you had to go to where your, your family and your clan were born. Like, that's your region. The, the way the Hebrews worked it, you just couldn't register up in Nazareth. You had to register there because Joseph is of the line and tribe of Judah, and more specifically, David. He's from David's line. And David is the city, sorry, and David, and Bethlehem was the city where David was born. This is where his family comes from. So you have to go to where your family originates, each to their tribes and areas, and that's where you register to see your family connections as well. So they were forced to go. They had to go down to Bethlehem. But unless this harsh decree comes out from Caesar Augustus to say to, uh, that you have to go be registered, who in their right mind at nine months pregnant is going to make the trip? Well, maybe if you, if you weren't forced to make the trip, do you think Mary's going to go? Well, no, she's going to stay home and have the baby at home. She's not, she's not trying to force the issue, oh, I'm having the Messiah, I've got to somehow get there. God is forcing the events. According to Calvin, he says this, We see that the holy servants of God, even though they wander from their design, unconscious where they are going, still keep the right path because God directs their steps nor is the providence of God less wonderful in employing the mandate of a tyrant to draw Mary from home that the prophecy may be fulfilled if Mary had not been constrained to do otherwise he says she would have chosen to bring forth a child at home that makes the most sense because this was a horrible burden and inconvenience to Mary. To have this decree come and this pressure to go do it now. Not now, just wait a little bit. No, now you have to go now. This is the horrible thing that happens in life. But God proves that even when bad events happen, the circumstances are awful to us. They are used by him to accomplish his purposes. God is still in charge. He still sits on his throne. Could you think of events in your life that couldn't have any worse timing? It couldn't have any worse timing. And not only that, it seems like what's forcing these circumstantial events, a tyrant is in charge. Somebody is forcing us to do something that not only we don't want, we don't like. 
you know, think about God's purposes. How can good come out of this, as we've looked at so often? And this is, all these events are these strange events that seem like they're impossible, they're, they're hard, they're difficult, and yet God works in the midst of it, sovereignly decreeing it all. This decree from Caesar Augustus, who's looking for taxes, is ordained by God, controlled, and sovereignly administered by God. All working out so that in the midst of this tyranny, in the midst of this oppression, what's God doing? He's bringing about the salvation of the world. Not only that, he's using a tyrant, wicked people, to fulfill his word. This is how God is. Sometimes it looks like evil is conquering over good. And yet God is behind it, working it to fulfill his word and to accomplish his will. How easy is it to talk, even look at our day, to talk about the nation, to talk about the government, to talk about power, to talk about what they're doing, to to almost feel like chicken little, the sky has fallen. I mean, it's just bad. The decisions that are made, you know, the White House and that are trickling down, the decisions that are made in the capital, the decisions that are made in our cities, the things that are happening. You know, you ever wonder, God, God, is he in control? Is Jesus on his throne? Yes, he is. And he is the one who's going to use all these events to work salvation. See, this is what our God is different. He doesn't need everything to be pretty and pristine to work his will. He doesn't need that to bring salvation. It can be ugly, it can be messy, and tyrants can rule the people of God. Tyrants can bring oppression. And yet, our God reigns and is using it all to work salvation. This is what he does. This is the God we serve. God employs the wicked. He employs them. Just think of Babylon. Babylon was no righteous people, were they? And he used, he, ra- he says, I raised them up for this very purpose, that they come in and sack Jerusalem, destroy it, and carry his people off into exile. He used a wicked people, and he raised them up for that very purpose. That's the way our God works. He doesn't need good, righteous people. He doesn't need it pretty. He can be ugly and he can use evil and take and actually employ them. They think they're doing their own will. They think they're fulfilling their own pleasures. And he's there in his employment. He says, thank you very much. The Messiah was born in Bethlehem. But there's something else I want us to notice here that is... It gets better. More of, this is where it really, I think, gets amazing. God's willingness to be born in an animal stall. Look at verse 7. So they go to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, and who is with child. And while they were there, look at verse 6. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger. Why? Because there was no place for them in the inn. Okay. 
Bethlehem is bustling, right? A lot of people there. And why are they there? They're there to be registered. Everybody's out of their areas. And so everybody needs a place to stay. Well, there's an inn in town. Most towns would have an inn, like a hotel kind of thing. Not exactly, but kind of. You go to the inn to stay when you're visiting. Well, the inn's full. Now where? Well, we can't really figure this out or take too much time because guess what? The wife's about ready to have a baby. So we're, we're in a pinch. So we're in a pinch. Could you find some place that had the kind of security, the safety, the, the, you know, the, the, so that you're not under exposure any, in, in any way? So had some, maybe even a tiny bit of comfort. Maybe you know, somewhere where she could lay down and give birth because we're out of luck here. And this is happening fast. Well, they can get shelter. <laughs> Perhaps there's, you know, they, they lay down hay for the animals in there. So there's a place to bed down and lie down. You know, this, this is the kind of birth that even poor people don't have. This, this is lower than low. And you understand, this is no ordinary birth. It's the most significant birth that's ever happened on planet Earth. God is about to be born. And God, who's ordained all things that comes to pass, willingly, and let's get this straight, willingly submits himself and subjects himself to the most humble birth imaginable. Do you know how easy it would have been for God to orchestrate and work in the hearts of some of the rich folk or the noble folk within that community to all make arranged circumstances so that and move in their heart to have them go to a nice place and be born in a nice place and a place of honor? Very easy. But no, that's not the God we serve. Our God, who sits in heaven, who's the most glorious being ever known. Our God, the God who creates all things, is willing to be born in an animal stall. Just let that sink in for a moment. It's hard to give an analogy to help, to help us to understand this. It's a place the poor wouldn't even have been born. Let's talk about being contrary to our flesh, isn't it? Talk about being contrary to man in general. If, if in our flesh, we want nothing but the best. We want five star. We don't want one star. Or maybe that's giving you credit. Negative one star. And if we have the opportunity, we choose five star. Of course. It's posh. It's nice. That's what we desire. And yet, the God of glory, the God of heaven, the God of the galaxies chooses a manger. What does this say about our God? Really? God is showing us here the way of true glory, the way of true greatness. So the question is, you know, even, you want to be great? Do you want to be great? He's revealing to us even here how God estimates greatness. You want to be great? You don't pursue greatness. You pursue lowliness. 
because God is the greatest of all and he will only exalt the lowly. If we choose in this life to pursue greatness, we are not going to receive or know true greatness. And certainly not in the life to come. Nobody on this earth ever equates greatness also, it's important to understand, with lowliness. We'd often think, oh, greatness? Oh, that's the, if you want to be great, you must lower yourself. That's where greatness comes from. The way up is down. That's the way the, ki- the kingdom of God, that's the way he, he talks. That's the way we understand it. That's the way it runs. The way up is down. And God models this. He, God comes to the lowest place, and he's going to be exalted to the highest place. This is what Philippians tells us. No one humbled themselves greater in a greater way. The world thinks that greatness is to be pursued. You want to be great, you pursue greatness. I did a Google search on, you know, you can Google search anything nowadays, right? How does, how does one become great? Just to see, uh, you know, I'll see, see what the world says. Well, this is, this is like one of the first ones that popped up, so I, this is what it said. It says, if we look at people who are great, well, first of all, they say success leaves clues. And it implies that if we look at people who are great, we'd find a common denominator, a golden thread tying them all together. Here's what I think we'd find. We'd find people who discovered their talent and then showcased that talent to the world in a new and creative way. They'd be doing something that's been done before in a new and unique way. And it went on to explain that concept. So that's, what, that's how you become great. You want to be great, then you've got to discover your talent and, and, and present it to the world in a new and unique way. But notice how Jesus doesn't give this advice. That's not what he says. And it's not the advice, it isn't the advice he gave his disciples. They were arguing and bickering, if you remember in Matthew chapter 20, about being great, great in the kingdom, right? Can I, who's going to sit at his right hand? And they all, oh, they just live with, just coveting the power and the thought of this. And Jesus knows their thoughts and knows what they're talking about. And he said this to them in Matthew 20, 25 through 28. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's the true way of greatness. It's God who lifts up, and it's God who brings low. And even in this life, if you want to become great, he said, become a servant. Humble yourself and serve. Jesus came healing. He came helping, freeing, and blessing. In essence, he came serving. That's what he did. And they wanted to make him king. They wanted to make him king on several occasions. However, the ones he was making look real bad, those religious leaders who couldn't stand him, they wanted to kill him from the beginning. The multitudes only turned away from him because it was the Father's will to hand him over. Hand him over to atone for sin. So his son, once again, further up, further in. What does he do? You thought he was a great servant, and you hadn't seen nothing yet. He was willing to submit himself to the death on a cross. The greatest 
most humbling thing that you could imagine, being degraded in the way that he was degraded, being treated in the way he was being treated, and yet he submitted himself to it. And the Father has exalted him above everything that is named because of it. This is the way of our God, the way of humility. It's, it's simply astounding. And this is, the, this is the God you serve. A God who in his glory and his greatness and his power that is immeasurable is willing to come and be born in an animal stall. There's enough right there just to meditate on, to think about, what is my God like? Right there. Just think about that. He's willing. Not just willing. He, he's say, okay. He's saying, this is what I'm going to do. And it doesn't end here, however. It goes on. We see his humility expressed as the passage moves along. As God gathers these unlikely witnesses for his greatest purposes. It's just, it, it, it keeps going. Verse 8. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled, obviously, with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. What happens here? God tells the angel to go to who? Does he say, you know what, we need, uh, there needs to be witnesses to this event. Because in the Hebrew culture, for, culture, how is something established but by the testimony of two or three witnesses? So he's gathering witnesses to this event, to come witness this event, to you declare to the rest of them, I saw the Messiah. And who does he go grab? Kings, nobles, princes, governors? Wrong. Shepherds. Shepherds in the field. I think we've heard this story so much that we, don't, we haven't really thought about it. But think about it. In terms of class structure, these, the shepherds are way down near the bottom. Now, if you wanted people to testify to this event, you want to see to witness what has just taken place, he call, you don't think of doing that. You think of getting people who have, are of nobility. But what you get here are the low class, go and get shepherds? And then the angel told them that this is what I want you to look for, to think that, think that there's a Messiah. The Messiah is to be born. This is what he t- tells them, right? He says, for to you, look at verse 11, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Okay, so what is he telling them there? Messiah has been born. And these are, these are Jews. They understand that. But notice what he says to them. He get, then moves on to tell them the sign or what's going to be the proof or the evidence to show that this is actually happening. What is it? Where are you going to find him? He says, this is proof that he is the one you're looking for. You're going to find him where in verse 12? And this will be, my, be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. What? Again, we just looked at that. The king of Israel is not found on a throne. He's found 
in swaddling cloths in a manger, in an animal stall. You know, it's amazing that we have a God like this. A God who's willing to be so humble, yet he's so glorious. God doesn't show off his glory. He rather, what does he do? He humbles himself and he hides his glory. Hides it. Cloaks it. Covers it up. Because you know something about our God? By his very nature, who he is in his essence, he is holy, completely other. He, he dwells in unapproachable light, unapproachable glory. Do you know what else he is? He's awesome. His power is unsearchable, unknowable. He is more powerful than anything or anyone. There's his, he can't help it. He's not trying to be glorious. He's not trying to be awesome. If you were to see God in heaven in all of his glory, it would absolutely, if he was not gracious to you, cause you to explode. Do you realize that you couldn't handle it right now? If he showed up in his full glory, you'd be done. He has to cloak it. So he doesn't try to be this way. I'm just so awesome and glorious. Look out. No, that's just in his essence who he is. He can't help it. And now, someone like that, this is, this is who he is, and this is what he does. He purposefully takes on humanity and becomes the lowest of the low. Cloaking and hiding his glory. Getting shepherds of no reputation to be his witnesses to this event. Everything about this is lowly, is humble. Who did he choose as parents? Poor people. Mary, this young child, this virgin. There's no reputation here. There's nothing here that would would cause him to be esteemed. There's no way that this God of ours is doing anything like any man would ever do. He lays aside all of his glory. He lays aside all of his power, and he submits himself to this. For lack of a better example, this is, this is pathetic in comparison, but if you look at people who've got plenty, lots, let's even take, for example, Bill Gates. He's got plenty. He's got lots, right? Lots and lots of money. Lots and lots of money. Truckloads. Could you imagine him... Willingly submitting his child to be born in a stall, an animal stall? Well, no. What's he going to do? What's man's thought? He's going he's to put him in the, the finest, the best, the premium, the supreme. He wants the best. He wants nothing but the best. Most of us, man in our flesh, we, we push towards, we tend towards the best, the greatest, and because that's way out of our means, we don't do that. But we, we, we don't willingly often take and submit ourselves in a humble situation. We often take and submit or put ourselves in the best possible position. Now, there's times 
um, where that's absolutely legit. I don't think that it's actually wrong to do this in some way. I, I get the best for my family. That's not what I'm saying. It's that we really have to understand and look and see what God is doing here is absolutely astounding. Our God in his humility is what he's willing to do is off the charts. It's hard in our society. You know what's hard here today is for us to, to us understand class distinction. Because we're, we're, culturally, we understand equality. This is what we're about, equality. We're about leveling the play, playing field. We're egalitarians. We're, we're individualistic. This is the culture. This is kind of the stuff we live in. And so we don't like it when someone's elevated above another. We all got to be equal. And we try, to, we try all that we can to level it out. So we're, we don't really get this as well. Because we don't have, see people way up here and ourselves way down here. Because class distinctions have been removed for quite a while. But if you, if you could think of class, uh, it's hard for, for us to imagine. I thought maybe, maybe here's an analogy that might work. Sometimes workforces develop a real class categorization and distinction. There are those who are at a higher level. They start to ridicule and talk smack about another department. That can happen. Or, or another area of the workforce. And there could become a stigma that it would actually be harmful and almost slanderous to your credentials and your position to associate with them. That can happen. I don't know if you've ever been in that scenario, but certain workforces can start to... You get man and you get his flesh, and he loves to start to do this. So it can happen. So that there's this group, group A and group B. Group A, if they're caught associating with group B, it's really kind of, there's, a, there's culturally, you can feel it in the air, pressure. And you know you would be breaking that culture and almost, in a sense, feeling their wrath if you were to go and associate with the lower class. People who've lived in class systems or structures and cultures, that's what it's like. And yet what God does is, is we can't describe the, the distinction, the separation, and yet he jumps the classes. He comes down to the lowest of the low. God is not afraid to clean your toilet. It's not beneath him. If you could think of anything that might be beneath you, if you've ever, think, have, have you ever felt that there would be a sense of shame because that's lower class and if I was to do that, it would kind of create an odd sense. If you can think about that at all, that's, the, that's what the, culturally, that's what he comes into and that's what he does. He goes to the lowest of the low and associates with them. But I want us to see something here. This, this isn't humility for humility's sake. It isn't just to be humble. Our God is incredibly humble, incredibly lowly, more lowly than any man is willing to be. He's willing to submit himself to the lowest of the low, but he does it for a purpose. He came to save. Our God. Here's the good news. If you look at verse 11, he announces this good news to the shepherds. He says, For unto you is born this day in the city of David who? A Savior. A Savior who is Christ the Lord. A Savior who is Christ, Christos, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Lord, the King of all. This is the one who's willing to stoop to this level, and why? 
to save, to save the world, to save us from, to save you from your sin, to save you from your shame, to save you from your guilt, to save you from your death so that you might be delivered. He's the one who's going to wash away your guilty conscience. He's the one who's going to release you from bondage and slavery. He's the one who's going to destroy the enemy of your souls. He's the one who's come to just to serve, to give, to lay down his life. And this is why the angels, look, they break out in song in verse 13. And suddenly there was with the angels a multitude of the heavenly host praising God. You know what these, the heavenly hosts just are praising God and they can't stop delighting and they can't stop praising. Why? Our God is awesome and amazing, not just in glory, but in goodness (laughs) that he would do this. Glory, verse 14, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he's pleased. Peace among those with whom he's pleased. You know this peace he's describing that surpasses understanding? You know who it's for? Those whom he's pleased. Who is the Lord pleased with? The humble. The Lord is pleased to give grace to those who know they need it. He is pleased. Do you need to be saved? And I, when I ask that question, it doesn't always mean eternal salvation from the wrath of God. But do you need to be saved? Do you find yourself in a situation where you need salvation? Do you long for God to fill you? Do you need peace and reconciliation with God? If so, then this God, this God is more than willing to come to you, more than willing to meet you, more than willing to fill you, more than willing to reconcile, more than willing. And you know what he doesn't want, though? He doesn't want your self-sufficiency. He doesn't want your good works. He doesn't want your self-righteousness. He doesn't want it. He wants your brokenness. That's the only thing that pleases him. For you to come to him in faith, believing that he is your only hope. To those people, they're deeply satisfied. To those who had come to him with one hand wanting help and the other hand wanting something else or hanging on to something else, he's far off. He's distant. Why didn't the Lord help me? I cried out to him. Well, because you're double-minded. There wasn't total broken humility where all that you looked to and all that you needed and all that you wanted was him. You needed him. Oh, God. And I, I guarantee you, all of you, if you've drawn near to God and he's drawn near to you, you can testify that when you go to him in humility and brokenness and you give him all, he fills you up. He draws near to you. Anyone who cries out to him and in sincerity trusts him and looks to him, he is pleased to save to the uttermost. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, we aren't used to this kind of God. We're used to thinking about a God who dwells in unapproachable light, who makes it hard for us to approach him. 
Understand, folks, he does dwell in unapproachable light because he can't help it. However, he is more than willing to come down into an animal's stall and suffer at the hands of men and subject himself to utter and complete servitude for your sake. Do you know God? Do you know him like this? Do you know your God to be this, to have this kind of humility, this kind of servitude, this kind of willingness to humble himself and put himself in the lowest possible place? Do you know this kind of God? Because this kind of God is incredibly attractive, incredibly delightful, incredibly good. Yet we're so darn self-righteous. We're so darn self-efficient. We're so darn proud that we have troubles approaching him because we're full of ourselves. Approach him in humility, and he fills you up. This is the God who saves. This is the God who humbles himself, lower than anyone is ever willing to go. This is the God here that is not afraid to remove his royal robes and come into your home and clean your toilet. He's not. He's done something a lot more humiliating than that. He is willing to do that. He wants to serve you. He is serving you today. He serves you a meal each week. He serves you. He gives to you. He blesses you. He sustains you. He strengthens you. He helps you. And he delights to. It's not too heavy of a burden for him. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need your worship. He doesn't need your service. He doesn't need anything. But he he delights to serve, to give, to bless. He delights to. And what he does also is he takes his spirit and places it in our hearts. And you know what then we like to do? We want to be like him. People of God who are humble and willing to lower themselves to any position and give and to serve and to bless and to touch the lives of others are those who've met the living God and know how good he is. And have been filled up by him. And when you're filled up by him. You're able to be like him. And give like him. This is the way. This is the way. Our God shows up. And this is the way he even shows up in your life. The way of humility. The way of the cross. The way of service of lowering himself for your good. So leave here today with this in mind. That you do not even fully grasp both directions. None of us can. We cannot fully grasp his exalted royalty, majesty, glory, and power. And we cannot grasp his utter ability to be humble, to be lowly, to be a servant, and to give his life for you. 
He's greater than you'll ever imagine, and he's better than you'll ever imagine. And as you understand that, it transforms your life. Amen. Father, thank you. Thank you so much that we have been loved, been served, and been given to. And it's just hard to imagine how much, how much you've humbled yourself so that we could draw near to you, that we might be blessed, that we might be forgiven, that we might be delivered, that we might know peace, that we might know the reconciliation with our trying God. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you're so willing to humble yourself and love us and save us in this way. Amen.